Welcome to Corporate Thought, the podcast where we talk about everything from food to family to music to the life of entrepreneurship and anything and everything else that makes life worth living. Welcome to the show. David Almasy joins the Corporate Thought podcast from Washington, D.C. Dave was the digital communications director in the George W. Bush White House, and now he runs the communications business Capital Gig. Dave has great stories about his time in the White House, and we discuss the role of the media and of influencers in today's business environment. Please enjoy my conversation with Dave Almasy. Hey, Dave Almasy, thanks uh, for uh, getting on the line with me. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the invitation. Always good to chat with you, my friend. Absolutely. It's um, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. I, I I tend to like to do these things in person, but I have uh, in uh, the 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 time of uh, of COVID nineteen, I've learned to uh, embrace uh, using uh, online technology for conversations. Yeah, and everything else these days, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> delivering of food, and yeah, I saw a headline the other day, and it said, "What would you do without Zoom and Netflix?" Um, yeah. <laughs> And remember when we were in high school, you know, I have two daughters uh, that are in school. Uh, you know, if this had happened way back when, someone just texted me and said, we might have had to actually read a book um, or or watch that one movie we had out from Blockbuster 10 times in a row, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what would have happened if we, yeah, if they would have said uh, social distancing and you can't be more than six feet apart in the video store? I mean, right? I, you know. <laughs> exactly. We just would have been uh, stuck inside with nothing to do, just playing our Atari or Nintendo, whatever was popular at the time. Yeah, you do know that if your daughters or mine or lots of other people listen to this, they'll have no idea what we're talking about. Of course not, of course not. <laughs> I mean, and, my, and 30 years from now, if people listen listening to it will be like what was this covid thing what are they talking about so what are they talking about hopefully hopefully <laughs> yeah hopefully that's the truth although they might actually remember but i have a feeling this is going to this will make um unfortunately i think this will make 911 look like a blip in history yeah you know it's interesting we you know like to you and me maybe right but i think the thing that we need to take into consideration which you know at our age you know we've seen a lot of stuff in our lifetime you know in our you know, late forties, early fifties. Yep. And, um, you know, I do a lot of speaking with college, uh, students. I do guest lecturing here in town on digital politics and social media and that sort of thing. And I often go back into the history of the evolution of white house communications. Cause I was internet director at the white house for Bush for a couple of years and, and kind of how do we get to where we are in terms of this current modern mode of technology and communications. And I asked them, I said, who's the earliest president you remember? And, uh, for many of them, these college kids, they will say Obama. Right. Because, you know, President Obama was you know, president for eight years and we have, uh, you know, President Trump now here rounding out his uh, fourth year. Uh, so that's 12 years there. And so if you subtract, you know, 17 or 18 by 12 for most of these college students, there were four or five when Obama was elected for the first time. And right. so, th so their recollection or, or their their concept of history. Um, I mean, when you say, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush to them, you might as well say Millard Fillmore to you and me. Right. So because they it's, it's something that is so out of touch for them. And so, um, you know, it's it's not it's not uh, impactful in their lives in the way that 9-11 was to you and me. And so maybe this virus will be, you know, in their memory, uh, the biggest thing that they have encountered, hopefully um, in their lifetime. Uh, hopefully things don't get worse. Um, 
but, uh, but yeah, so when you put it in perspective, I, I'm now starting to feel my age a little bit. And I remember when my parents were talking about the JFK assassination or the end of World War II for my grandparents, you know, these were things that were very, you know, uh, um, important in their lives. But for us, it was just in the history books. So, so yeah. So on another, uh, there's a, I, I, I am a co-host of another podcast and um, on one of the episodes of that show, we were talking about um, history and uh, one of my co-hosts was sort of lamenting that the world has gotten crazier in his mind and that uh, really, you know, he said, well, 9-11, now this. And I said, well, hang on. You know, I said, you're, you know, he's our age. And I, and he goes, well, life, you should just be so much, I don't, you know, life was so much more calm. And I said, well, I don't really agree. I think in our lifetimes, you know, perhaps some of those things we didn't see, because first of all, as children, we didn't quite, um, you know, have the same understanding of things that were going on as you do as an adult when you have more responsibility. But yeah. also, you know, do you think that people come in, you know, that, that if you had been our age, you know, in the late 1930s, you know, early 1940s, turn of, you know, America entering World War II, um, that you thought life was calm? <laughs> right. Well, I remember as a kid waiting in lines for gas at the gas stations in the 80s during the the, the energy crisis, right? Oh, yeah. So, and, and, and in the Iranian hostage crisis, which kind of led to the election of Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter losing after his first term. And so these are when I started to kind of start to pay attention. And that was in the, what, you know, uh, late seventies. Uh, well, that's that's yeah. when you said when you had just said about the the, the kids saying Obama. Uh, it, immediately, I thought to myself, okay, who's the first president that you really remember? Yeah. And I, you know, so Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. I mean, yes, yeah. I, I was alive for for President Ford, and I was alive for President Nixon, but um, I don't remember anything about them really. Really, it comes to to you know Carter being the first one that I have any kind of like memories, sort of, of being something that I really understood. <laughs> well, I remember the Iranian hostage crisis pretty vividly because I was living in Silver Spring, Maryland at the time, and one of the hostages lived in our neighborhood. Oh, wow. And so when he came home, it was like a huge, you know, uh, welcoming home party. And you know, we had the yellow ribbons tied around all the trees. I don't know if you remember that, that movement. Mm, yep. People were doing that. To, you know, and they were obviously in captivity for, it was over 100 days, if I'm not mistaken. So it, was, it, it wasn't like a small amount of time. And so when he came home, it was a big deal. And I remember thinking for the first time, you know, that was like my first interaction with a country outside of the United States that was meaningful, that impacted me directly. You know what I mean? So, because uh, we didn't have access to all these international channels on TV to watch, you know, th those sorts of things. It was our four television stations and, you know, occasionally radio, the news, WMAL, mom would listen to on the way to work or something and dropping me off to school. And, but there was no interaction with international community. And this was the first time where I realized that the impact of what this country does actually has, you know, some influence on the rest of the world. And, uh, and you realize what it means to be an American. Yeah. I, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm going to say this and if I'm wrong, you know, someone will correct me, but um, in my mind, for some reason, I believe that the whole that uh, the Ted Koppel show Nightline, yeah, yeah, started because it started as a as a show that was basically following the um, the that hostage situation, and that was literally the birth of the show. It was like mm -hmm. a special that was going on every day, and then they just kept going with it. Yeah, I think you're right about that because I don't know what time it aired. Was it like an eleven o'clock thing, or was it a was like yeah, a, I think it a was prime like a, time it was, news hour? It was like an after the eleven o'clock news thing. Yeah, that was the that that was the birth of uh, of of you know what became Ted Koppel's you know 
major part of his career, I guess. Yeah. No, I remember that uh, very clearly. I don't remember what, when it started or why it started, but you could be 100% right. And, you know, the concept of having news outside of either, you know, 5, 6 o'clock or 11 p.m. was probably a pretty foreign concept at the time. Sure. So that's going to be something that I'm going to. So you don't maybe know this, but um, my regular listeners know that um, my show notes always include very specific details and links. So mm. I will be doing. You're going to dig um, that up. I will be doing that. There's a there's a there's a podcast um, called Armchair Armchair Expert. It's okay. uh, it's a guy named uh, Dak Shepard. He's an actor. You may have. Yeah, I know Dak Shepard. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So he has a he has this great podcast called called Armchair Expert, and he actually has uh, like a sub bunch of them called Experts on Experts, which I love, and they're usually with like you know interesting authors and things. But he has a sidekick, and her name is Monica Padman. And Monica, uh, at the end of each episode, does like a fact check and provides detail over the things that they talked about in the interview with whomever. Like she goes back and does the research. And I keep saying, I just need my own Monica. Right. <laughs> He's married to Kristen Bell, right? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy. yeah. So his, yeah. his his podcast is great, but I but I keep I keep I keep saying um, out loud and on the air that I need my own Monica and thinking that maybe she'll give me a call and say, hey, I have some extra time. <laughs> Well, he is the co-star of one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Idiocracy. Oh, great movie. Yes, great yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously pure satire, but I think, you know, I often wonder if that's the direction we're headed. Um, so sometimes you, you watch this show and you think this is a little too close to real life in terms of uh, what we're living these days. But no, oh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of both Dax and Kristen. And of course, their commercials are great. Yeah. So, OK, so you know exactly who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Soon, oh, so. yeah. so you 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 launched over you. You very briefly said something about, you know, your time in the White House and yeah. made it sound like there had been lots of uh, digital communication uh, people in the White House, but I think, in fact, you were probably the first one, right? Well, there was, uh, so Bill Clinton, at the end of his term, um, did something that was unprecedented for the federal government, and that was he launched a website for whitehouse.gov. So he had a uh, one or two people who were career employees who worked um, in the IT department who, who assisted with the launch of that website, And when they launched it, they required that every federal agency, at least cabinet level agency, so HHS and HUD and Pentagon and all that, will have a website also on the same day. And so he really kind of ushered in the new digital era. So he was the first to have a White House website. And so, um, you know, when um, George W. Bush came in, there were, you know, there were no such thing as, you know, uh, HTML or you know, Adobe Photoshop or all the tools that we use now to develop websites. There was no WordPress, all the backend solutions, that sort of thing. So everything was pretty much done by hand. And um, so uh, when George W. Bush came in, uh, there was a guy named Jimmy Orr, who was the first internet director for the White House underneath George Bush in the first term. And then I started in the second. And so there was a team in place. They were all um, mostly federal employees and a few contractors who ran the IT piece of it and helped with the production of content. So we had video, they would stream the video or encode it or that sort of thing. Or you know, they actually built the website, both the front end and back end. It was a custom solution uh, because we had security concerns, obviously. So we had, um, we had a team that was in place, but in terms of the official internet director position, it was just me and I had a deputy. Um, so there were two of us uh, for the, um, at the beginning of the second term 
And I was there about two and a half years before I left and went into the private sector. Well, that's got to be an, a very interesting um, sort of background to to working in in um, in digital media is is spending time in that role, right? Well, yeah, and I think if you look at the, you know, it's interesting is you know, people often like to compare um, how effective presidents were um, from a digital perspective, and it's really an unfair comparison to even try to compare you know, Bush to Clinton, or even to compare Obama to Bush or Trump to Obama or Trump to Clinton. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like saying, you know, you're going to compare the, the, the modern Ford Mustang to the Model T, you know, like the evolution that has happened in such a short period of time, quite frankly, over the past 20 some years has been so rapid. And um, I still think we're at the beginning of the advent of, you know, true social media. We're, we're just, you know, uh, when it comes to, uh, so I often refer to Clinton as being the first internet president. Uh, George W. Bush was the first digital president because he was the first to have his entire presidency categorized and cataloged online for eight years from beginning to end. Obama, I think, was the first social media president to really use these tools in an effective way to communicate. And of course, we view Trump as the first real Twitter president. I mean, Obama used Twitter, but it was occasional. You know, he didn't run his accounts. Um, and Trump doesn't run his account alone either. Dan Scavino helps tweet as well. Um, so I understand he's the only one who has access to the account from what I hear. It's just he and, uh, and the president. So, um, so I think we're just at the beginning of this, you know, sort of digital evolution in terms of how we use these tools. It's mostly still text-based. We still have audio and video that's available on these tools, but it's abbreviated, right? You're not, you know, I guess you are watching some things on Twitter if it's live streamed or on Facebook or so forth. But so that's, that part's getting better. But, um, but yeah, the, the evolution has been quite, quite rapid. And when I was there, it was 05 to 07. So a lot of these tools were just getting started. And, um, you know, YouTube was, had launched in 06, but it wasn't until Google bought them in 08 uh, is when they really started to take off and had the money behind them to grow. Um, and so I think, you know, what's been fascinating for me is, you know, we'll never really kind of get the credit for some of the innovations that we put in place at the White House um, during that time because it was so new and the adoption of these tools were just not, um, you know, mainstream yet. But I'm really proud of the things that we were able to accomplish. There were 10 things I wanted to achieve before I left the job, and I achieved nine of them. And so, of course, the question always is, what was number 10, right? So right. Uh, number one of them, by the way, was the biggest one, which is our redesign and relaunch of whitehouse.gov, which I thought that was the one I was not going to be able to complete. But in uh, March of 07, we did just that, and I left in May. Um, but the 10th one was I wanted the president to do a live um, – Q&A. It was called Ask the White House. We used to do it via text. People would email questions in and then we would compile them and the president would answer them in real time. Uh, I wanted to do that live via video from Air Force One. Um, wow. So uh, they never did get the, because the, you know, after 9-11, the Air Force One, um, both, there's two planes. Um, they were both uh, uh, upgraded and uh, retrofitted to make sure that they could communicate properly, which as you may know, was one of the challenges of 9-11 is it didn't have basic uh, communications capabilities beyond just a telephone. And when the towers went down, and I don't mean the twin towers, I mean the cell phone towers uh, ceased being effective. Uh, they were basically cut off from most of the world up there in the plane, which was obviously not a good place to be in if you're the president and the leader of the free world. So. So with all these new things, the president on the new plane had access to um, the internet and uh, from a wireless perspective and, um, and was high speed access and was able to engage. And so it wasn't quite done yet when I left. 
And so a few months after I left, they, he was coming back from a Middle East peace trip. And my deputy um, sent me a note and said, hey, the president's going to do an Ask the White House, but it's not via video. It's going to be from text. It's the first time he'd ever done this. Do you want to submit a question? And I said, sure. So I submitted a question and uh, she chose it as the first one. Um, <laughs> I had left the White House, but I, but I was really honored by that. And it was David A. from Alexandria, Virginia. And I think my question was something along the lines of, hey, many presidents have flown to the Middle East in hopes of peace. What makes this trip different? So it was a bit of a bit of a softball, to be honest, but you sure. know, it was open-ended and it was a good way to kick off the conversation. Um, so yeah, so things have really changed over the years, but it's been, uh, it was an honor to do it. It was a great job. It was stressful. I was uh, very proud of some of the things we achieved and uh, more thankful for some of the friends and relationships that I was able to form during my time there. Right. No, I, I, as you're telling these stories, I'm like, I've got all this stuff that's like rolling through my head. So the first thing that hit my head was you were explaining, you know, it's not fair to compare one to the other. And what came to mind was, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess, the Nixon-Kennedy yeah. first televised debate, right? Yeah. And now you look at what debates look like, you know, in comparison, if you ever see old footage of that, and it's, you know, <laughs> it's not even... It's not even, you know, that was, they always said that was worth, that's what doomed Nixon in that election was because he looked all sweaty and everything and uncomfortable because, yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, being, this, you know I, I on talk, screen. Yeah, I talk about some of this when I do my guest lecturing. It was 1960. And during that debate, you know, I was actually giving this presentation once to a larger audience and it had a mixture of older and younger folks. And this gentleman at the end raises his hand in the middle of my presentation. He said, Hey, I used to work for President Nixon and I was there that night. Do you want to hear the story? I said, no, this is my presentation. And I moved on. But the point is, is no, I'm kidding. Of course I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, please, please tell me the story. And he said um, that he was an aide that day. And yeah, Nixon was sick as a dog, like literally had been fighting just a horrible illness, was a cold or flu or whatever it was, and was running late. And as he was getting out of the car, um, one of the aides wasn't paying attention and didn't realize that he was still in the car. And the aide closed the door on his, on his leg. So he's injured, he's limping, he's sweaty, he's running late, he didn't have any makeup put on him, he feels sick, he's pale, and he gets thrust in the front of national television to debate a very you know, dapper-looking John, uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, right? So, mm -hmm. so he, uh, and of course, um, uh, what was interesting from a producer's perspective is that if you're there in the room, you have the benefit of seeing both candidates. But if you're watching at home on television, you only have the benefit of seeing whatever camera is focused on whatever the candidate is, is speaking, right? So Nixon took the opportunity that whenever Kennedy was speaking to wipe his nose. And so if you're a producer or director on the television side, you would say, well, listen, I want the American people to see that because if you're in the room, you'd see that. So he asked to cut to the camera to show that Nixon was wiping his nose. So you have these images of not only Nixon looking sick, but also, you know, wiping his nose and, and you know, and exhibiting wow. these sorts of behaviors, which could impact your decision-making when it comes to voting. And then uh, after the thing was over, though, what, there were these two radio announcers, and they had said, well, who do you think won? And the one announcer said, well, I think if you were watching on television, you thought Kennedy won because he just looked better. He looked more presidential, he looked more put together, and he was very charismatic. But the other one said, but if you listen to just the audio, I think if you're listening on radio, you would think Nixon had won because he appeared to be better on the issues. He had better answers. And so from that point forward, I was taught even at Widener University, Mark. So yep. I was taught in my political science class that if you watch it on television, you thought Kennedy won. If you listen to it on the radio, you thought Nixon had won. But there's never been any study or poll or any sort of research to prove that. It's only because someone in the media made that assessment that it's become taught as fact. 
So I think the biggest piece of all this is that media still matters, okay. right? It, it mattered then, it matters today. You know, whenever you watch a debate, the number one question is to the media and the pundits, well, who won? And if yeah. you like a particular candidate, if you're supporting a candidate and you think that your person did well or didn't do well, you still think they won, you know, because you want them to win. So you're kind of unbiased. So when a pundit tells you that, that someone didn't do well, you kind of feel like sucker punched and you're like, well, gosh, I thought my guy or my, or the woman I was supporting did well, but we're influenced by these folks on TV who tell us what we think we should think. Well, and this is where, this is where I get very interested in where social media and where these things are going because, so now you take this idea. And so we're influenced in our politics by what, by what, um, you know, some talking heads then say when the, when the debate is over and likewise, people are literally making careers out of, I guess, endorsing products, right? Mm -hmm. People yeah. who don't, I mean, and I don't know why this person or that person, all of, you know, this whole influencer type economy. Um, I'm, 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 I'm a little scratching my head at it. I'm, I'm trying to, to understand it. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I guess maybe it's an age thing. So I'm old school. So I, you know, I want to re read a review. I like using some of the tools that we have now so I can see what people have to say about our product, but truly like what they say when they break it down and they say, well, this is good and this fact feature is bad. And, you know, literally I was buying a backpack. There's a guy, all he does is review backpacks and like, 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 like office gear, like basically mm. backpacks. And I must've watched 50 videos on backpacks. <laughs> okay. But you know, I thought it was interesting, but yeah. I, but I compare that to the, to the influencer who just says, you know, I use this and all of a yeah. sudden people and they're, and they're getting some, you know, and, and people are buying it because that person said so with nothing else well, behind it. <laughs> yeah. A couple things. I think, um, I think it is an age thing. I think, um, you know, the way that you and I get information is probably not through Instagram initially. I mean, we might be on Instagram and I, I am, I mean, I use it, but it's not my number one source of information, but for a lot of, you know, folks under the age of 15, it is, um, you know, whether it's Snapchat, Instagram, you know, whatever. Um, YouTube, as I mentioned, when Google bought YouTube, um, you know, that, that took off and, um, you know, it's just how people get information. And when you search something, you're more likely to get a, did you realize that, that YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world? And when I tell people that, they're like, well, YouTube's not a search engine. I'm like, yeah, it is. You go to YouTube and you type in a subject because you're looking for a video about that thing. And so Google's number one, YouTube's number two. And so, so it's the way that people get information now and, and will be for the foreseeable future, in, in my view. I, um, I coach soccer, or at least I used to before they canceled our season two weeks ago. Right. Um, but uh, high, high school soccer. And um, one of the girls on my team last year, she was uh, a sophomore and she was, you know, trying to plan out her future. And she was like, coach, you've done work in communications and PR, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And she goes, I'm thinking about getting into that. What advice do you have for me? And I said, well, what area do you want to get into? Like, is it, you know, sports or, you know, fashion or, you know, whatever. And she, you know, business and uh, she said, no, I want to be a professional Instagrammer. And I said, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I want to be an influencer. And I was like, okay, but you realize you have to build up an audience before you can become an influencer. And I had to explain to her that, you know, the, the concept of being an influencer has never changed um, from the beginning of time. There are people that people listen to, and there are people that don't have much of a voice for whatever reason. And what's, what's changed is the channel, right? So when Michael Jordan became an influencer, it wasn't because you know, he had a lot of Instagram followers or Twitter followers it's because he could do amazing things on a basketball court and later a baseball field. Right. So, um, and so he became this world renowned and worldwide known figure. And so using that sort of 
celebrity to sell shoes or, you know, sports drinks or whatever he was selling um, became a thing. And that was true for any celebrity, whether you're an actor or whatever. And the only thing that's changed now is that these folks build up an audience because of who they are, they're content creators in social media. So they've created a following, maybe because they're funny on TikTok or because they, you know, have some creative views on the world and have built up, um, you know, a following that way, or they review products to your point. You know, a lot of these folks review, you know, clothing or, you know, I was in the market for some packing squares. You know what packing squares are? Oh yeah. I use them. Yeah. These things have changed my life. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> I have a friend of mine, one of my fraternity brothers, Nat Love. Uh, we were on a trip together and he pulls out these little you know, zipper bags out of his suitcase. And I'm like, what, what are those? He's like, they're packing squares. It helps me organize my content. And I, you know, I'm, literally my stuff is pouring all over the, the bed as I'm trying to unpack <laughs> my, my, my suitcase. He was like, oh no, you got to get some packing squares. So I did some you know, searching online. I found several people who are travel experts who have done reviews on packing squares. And I made a purchasing decision as a result of the consistency of the particular brand that these travel bloggers had, had um, endorsed. Right. So, you know, so that sort of influence to your point about when you did searching as well, it helps influence your decision because they're experts in that very specific thing, whether it's a backpack or office equipment or a soccer ball or whatever, you have people who are experts in that field who've used the products and can provide some credible advice as opposed to someone who says, Hey, I eat cornflakes because they taste good. You know, so. No, that's, that, you're absolutely right. I think it also goes to the fact that anyone, you know, essentially, you know, Michael Jordan did it because he was, because he had, because of his sports prowess that preceded yeah. it. So people, you know, right. They wanted to do it because they, they wanted to, be like Michael Jordan, right? Oh, he endorsed these shoes, you know, used to buy Air Jordans because Michael Jordan, you know, they're his sneakers, right? So, um, and and for a variety of other athletes and those products, but now people are becoming subject matter experts, if you will, or becoming viewed as, as experts um, in topics simply because they basically produce content about it, which is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, in fact, I, you know, arguably the person who writes a review on packing squares knows more about packing squares than if, than if, uh, you know, Brett Favre was, 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 was endorsing a brand of, of packing square. Right. Right. So uh, there's some value there, but I think it's also because technology is, is making it so much easier to get into business and to go into these fields. Right. Well, to build a following too, right? And so, you know, it's interesting. So Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone and uh, Evan Williams are the founders of Twitter. And um, a few years after Twitter had launched and they started to gain some real success, I saw, I don't know if all three of them were on a panel or just one of them. I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about what was your biggest fear when you launched Twitter? And they said, our biggest fear was that celebrities wouldn't use it because they wanted to protect their privacy. And what's happened is the actual opposite, is that celebrities jumped on board and use it as a way to promote themselves and to build an audience with people that they weren't normally able to build or even quantify in any real way, right? So, you know, you talked about Dak Shepard earlier, right? I bet if you went to his Twitter account right now, you could tell how many millions of people follow him on Twitter. Um, and so he can log in every day and see who his community is. These are people who followed him because they have an interest in Dak Shepard. Before that, the only way you can sort of gauge your popularity is maybe at the box office or, you know, if you look at the numbers of streams on Netflix that his programs or shows are having or whatever, 
but you know, it's a quantifiable way to say, here's an audience of people that DAX can influence one way or the other, assuming that they aren't all bots. That's the other issue. Some of these are not real people that are followers, but it's still some sort of measurement and it's a way, and again, the other piece is just because he tweets something doesn't mean that all those followers have seen that tweet, right? So um, it's the ability for that tweet to be consumed in the human brain and then people act on it as the result. And so what's happened is you have these folks on you know, Instagram primarily that I've seen, most of the folks who are trying to promote their products, and some of them are models or fitness experts or whatever. I mean, there's very few ugly, famous people on Instagram I've seen. Uh, so, <laughs> so most of the ones with large followings is because they're attractive in many ways, right? Either they're pr promoting a product or a service or just themselves. And then in between, they put little ads and because they get paid to put out these things. So that that model of these, these corporate brands who see these people followings, maybe the corporate brand, let's say you're Pepsi, for example, Pepsi has its own following, but when you have a kind of a third party surrogate out there who has their own following, who tweets about you know, other things and then occasionally has a picture of them holding a Pepsi and they're reaching their 2.5 million Instagram followers, um, particularly if you put some promotion dollars behind it, that's gonna increase your impact and influence and it's gonna send the message to the younger generation, younger generation that Pepsi is a cool product because these cool people on Instagram are reaching younger audiences. It's not, you're not targeting those over 70. Right, no, it's, and, and obviously the, the, there's, a, there's that, that age of, of that buying age that, that all these companies want to reach, right? The, you know, these ideal um, consumers. So, um, but you also mentioned, and you were just talking about, you talked about like, you know, sort of like, you know, living their lives. Some of these people are living their lives in a much more open way uh, because they're living them online. And I think that is, um, that's also a, a, perhaps a generational change, right? Uh, you have teenage daughters, as do I. And I think um, these kids, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they're, they are, they're living their life in a much more public way than I think you or I might have even now and certainly when we were younger. Oh, for sure. And not only that, I would say it's not only is it open, but I think it's more contrived. I think it's more purposeful, right? So their goal is not to just to put up a picture of themselves. Their goal is to get likes and follows as a result, which feeds into their ego or their, their internal self-worth or what have you. You know, one of the classes I taught at Georgetown was a class on, on digital communications in the uh, corporate communications and PR school there. And um, I would always start off my semester by asking which tools that my students use. And keep in mind, these are graduate students. So they're probably in their early twenties, most of them. Um, and so, you know, obviously some of the bigger ones at the time, a couple of years ago now were Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and what have you. And um, so I said, uh, I said, well, let me ask you, does every um, post you put up on Instagram get a lot of likes? And they said, a couple of them said, no. And then one woman offered that whenever she posts something on Instagram, if it doesn't get at least 50 likes, she deletes it. Really? Yeah. And I said, well, why? And she says, well, I don't want people to think that my content isn't meaningful. I was like, to who? She said, well, to the, to the Instagram community. I was like, but wait a minute. You were out and about and say you're at a restaurant, you took a picture of your meal because that's what people take pictures of, their food and their pets, right? And uh, so, and I said, it was important to you because you wanted to preserve that memory. And so you put it on Instagram because you wanted to put it on Instagram. Did you put it on because you wanted to generate uh, a following or social media credibility or did you do it because it meant something to you? And she was like, well, both. I was like, well, clearly the Instagram following is more important because you deleted it because if others didn't like it, then therefore you were afraid that your own image and your own self-worth was going to be diminished. So therefore you couldn't deal with that pain. So you dealt with it by just eliminating it. And she's like, I never thought of it that way. I'm like, this is why you're in my class. 
So, <laughs> so, but the point is, is like, you know, she put that out purposefully to try to elicit a, a certain response on social media, not because it meant something to her in a meaningful way. And I think that sets a very dangerous precedent for life. And you ask people, you know, hey, when you put stuff on social media, how many times was it the first photo you took? Well, it's never, right? It's usually like the 10th photo because the first nine had some something wrong. The lighting wasn't right or the shadow was off or, you know, you had an eyelash on your cheek or whatever it was. Like there was something that wasn't quite perfect about that photo before you publish it. So it sets off this unrealistic expectation to the world about who you are and the life that you're living. And so I think that, you know, particularly for young people, when they're trying to figure out who they are, that's a dangerous place to be because there's no authenticity that's being um, generated or very little authenticity has been generated in your formative years so that when you get older, I'm not sure they're going to be able to cope with real life challenges and struggles down the road. Right. Yeah. I think it's going to change. It's obviously going to, going to have that kind of interesting uh, personal impact that maybe we don't even know. We don't even know what we're going to find yet. So it is interesting though, because I have there was a um, a woman I met at the South by Southwest Film Festival a couple of years ago. There was a movie about um, women serving in the military. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the movie now. It was a really great documentary, and it featured about six different women. And after it was over, um, some of them were there at the film festival, and so I went up to introduce myself because one of them was from the D.C. area and was a former Redskin cheerleader, as well as being a, a United States Navy nurse. And um, so I was just fascinated by her story and. Um, she confided in the in the documentary that she had a pretty severe health condition on top of this. And so she decided on her social media to be open about that and her struggles um, and the medication she was taking. And so that people just didn't see, you know, just the glitz and glamour piece of her life being a Navy nurse and, uh, and the Redskin cheerleader and the modeling she had done. But there was other charities and things that she was also involved with. But she also was very open about her struggles and she showed like her bruised arms where she would have to take medication or, you know, some of the rashes that would form as a result of her disease. And some days she said she can't leave the house because she has no energy. And so the fact that she was authentic and open about that, I think really says a lot about her character and that she was able to tell people in the world that if you're struggling with something, it's okay. You, you, you know, she fights to get through some days and it's okay to feel that way. And I find, you know, accounts like that and people like that to be much more useful than those who are just trying to put forth the perfect life. Well, and that's perfect because that's, I often tell when I, um, when I have um, entrepreneurs uh, and, and business owners come on this podcast and I talk to them in advance and I'll say, they'll say, well, what kind of things do you want to talk about? You know, this success or that success. And I said, I actually want to talk about your failures. Yeah. And they say, well, why? And I said, and I'll tell them, I said, because if all we show are this is the success then I actually think it is a deterrent to others who will say, well, I'm not as successful as this person and I give up or how am I ever going to make that happen like they did? And the truth of the matter is that everybody who spends any time uh, building a business uh, will have failures, will have setbacks. It's how you deal with those setbacks, how you learn from them, how you apply those lessons that let you be successful down the road. So I always want to talk about the failures and not just make everything look all shiny and pretty. No, hundred percent. And I, you know, as a soccer coach, I can tell you, I've learned a lot more from my losses than I have from, from my wins. Um, you know, when the wins come, it's because the things you worked on typically after a loss are starting to be executed in the next game. And then you make improvements and adjustments and, you know, fighting against that complacency as well. You know, it's like you win a couple in a row and you start to feel like, Hey, we're doing everything great. 
but you know, every opponent's different and, uh, any given Sunday, right. The best team doesn't always win. Right. Um, sometimes the, you know, the, the, the less talented team plays better or the more talented team just has an off day and is not communicating and there's infighting and we're not executing on the things that are fundamentals. And that's true in business too. Right. I mean, you kind of get caught in these, in these, you know, these ebbs and flows and that's life. I mean, listen, if you succeeded at everything all the time, what fun would it be? Like you would never have the, you would never know the joy of success if you hadn't experienced the bitterness of failure. Right. So uh, I'm not saying you have to you know, create a life of failure, <laughs> so, no, no, no. Um, but it means that, you know, for every door that closes there's two more that open. And so you've got to be, you know, think positively and move forward and think, okay, I didn't do as well on that last thing. And I know why, or maybe I don't know why, but I'm going to try a little bit harder next time so that I don't experience this again. Um, and I'm going to get right back at it. Um, you know, it's like the whole famous quote about, um, you know, who has the, the, um, the, the most home runs in, in baseball history. It's not Hank Aaron. Is, it, is, is, I think it's Babe Ruth, isn't it? Okay. Maybe I thought it was Hank Aaron, but maybe I'm wrong. It could be <laughs> Hank Aaron. Um, so you have to go in the show notes and like dig yep. this out and get, and get the actual one. Well, anyway, the point is he also had the most, um, most strikeouts. Right. Um, so, you know, so that means you got to swing, you know, he swung in a lot of balls and he missed more than he hit, but the ones he hit went out of the park, a lot of them. Right. So, right. so the point is, is like, you know, it's, it's like the, I think it's the Wayne Gretzky quote where it says that you, you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yep. Um, so, you know, you have to, you know, think of it that way when it comes to business as well. The problem is that it's not, your results are not often overnight. Like these are things that you build up. And I can tell you, I probably chased about five new business projects and like usually half of one comes through of those five. Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I, I live, I, that sounds, that's, that's the life I lead very often. Yeah. So, yeah. So now you've taken, so now you've taken the sort of these experiences, um, your White House experience and other working for others experience, and yep. maybe even maybe even your software coaching experience, and you've plugged this into now your business, yeah, that is your company. So how, so and you know I did little little research and I'm like, okay, so Capital Gig, yeah, communications agency, yeah, which I'm like, okay, well, is that public relations? Is that something more than public? Like what 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 is a communications agency? Yeah, so you know I think. The, the idea of um, specific siloed interdisciplinary, um, you know, uh, areas are gone. And so and back in the day, you know, 35, 40 years ago, if you had a product, you would hire an advertising agency and then you'd hire a marketing firm. You hired a PR person, you hire a press person to do media relations. You do. And I think that because of the convergence of all these tools have just, you know, complicated that. Um, you know, when I left government, I went into public relations and I worked at Wagner Edstrom for a time, which was Microsoft's PR firm based out in uh, Bellevue, Washington. And they have another office in Portland, Oregon, um, in Lake Oswego. And then I went to Edelman uh, here in D.C. And Edelman is one of the largest independent PR firms in the world. They're based in Chicago with large offices in New York and D.C., as well as many other offices around the country and, and the world. And I really learned kind of the basics and the principles of public relations, which I kind of had some of that just by doing on-the-job stuff. But I'd never been formally trained in the art of public relations. And so I was very, very thankful. And I, and I went in there, you know, not thinking like, hey, I worked at the White House. I know everything. I, in fact, I, it was the complete opposite. I said, listen. 
awesome. I know a little bit about government. I experienced some of the challenges we had in government communications and some of the tools and limitations of budgets and, and manpower and resources. But now I joined agencies that had large clients who had millions of dollars to spend on these campaigns. And we just didn't have that in the government. So I was very, so it was very kind of a, a different time. And so I adopted and learned a lot of things through that, through those um, experiences. And then um, after a time, decided to maybe go out and try it on my own. And so um, I had learned a lot about media and PR and communications and messaging and uh, event management and so forth. And so I decided just to kind of, you know, be a little bit of, a little bit of everything if I could. Now, having said that, you know, I'm very open about the fact that if someone says, hey, I need someone who's like a really great speechwriter, I'm like, great, that's not me. But I have people who are really great speechwriters. And so I've set up this sort of network of freelancers um, that are a lot of them are independent people like myself, sole practitioners, and I will build teams as needed as we approach each project. Um, that way we keep the costs low because, you know, we are, you know, we're not, um, you know, I do have some office space, but, but, but before I launched office space, you know, I didn't have the overhead of that or the overhead of having, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of employees having to feed mouths. Um, so by having this network of independent contractors, particularly for the smaller accounts, you know, say someone is, can only spend, you know, 5,000 a month or 10,000 a month, which it, it's a lot of money, but when you start to divvy it up per week, it's, you know, 2,500 a week. And then if you charge, you know, two, $300 an hour and you're on conference calls twice a week or twice a day and working on projects, that money can be eaten up pretty quickly. So you have to be able to kind of learn to budget and how to disseminate these sorts of projects as they come in. And I just felt that it was a much better model for me to kind of keep it on a smaller scale of having five to six clients at a time and juggling that and managing that as the best I could, as opposed to being an agency that capital gig would be, you know, 50 people with, you know, 25, 30 clients um, and trying to keep the lights on by making, you know, a couple million a year. Like I just think if it gets to that, great. But I just, I'm really happy with the, with the balance of the work-life balance of where I am at this point in my life. And it seems to be working. So. Fair enough. So you, um, so you are able to provide by being this sort of into intradisciplinary uh, yep. thing, you can, you can meet a, a more wide range of needs for, for us, for your select clients, is that exactly? Fair? So, okay. some of my clients are corporate. Some of them, um, some are government affairs related. Some are, you know, um, issue advocacy on the policy side. Um, um, so, the nonprofit organizations. Some are individuals who are trying to build up their own brand reputation. Um, one of them is a new business. He's just launched a, a new business and wanted help building a website, creating social media channels, and coming up with some content ideas. Um, and then we also helped him with some media. So we did some announcement around the launch of his business. And so I got him a couple interviews uh, with a couple a couple local uh, business outlets to kind of get his name out there. And so, um, so yeah, so it's a kind of a little bit of everything. And then you know he wanted to get on some um, some speaking circuit uh, uh, opportunities. So whether it was panel discussions or um, you know local conferences that focused on his issues as a business, so he could get out there and increase his name ID and begin the network a little bit. So you know it's a little bit of everything. You know, and like I said, it's kind of like a jack of all trades. But you know, I, I think what happened was I'd spent a number of years at C-SPAN uh, back in the day, and I and I you know became pretty well versed in television and and sort of uh, television production, and I learned how to edit and and you know the lighting and camera work and all that kind of stuff. And then I got into websites, and I sort of got pigeonholed as a digital person. And people didn't think of me, I found, as a media person. They thought of me as a digital person. So I decided to sort of shift my own narrative, at least among my close friends and, and, and circles before I launched Capital Gig, to say, hey, listen, I can do all this stuff. 
And um, again, you know, if you need someone who's an expert when it comes to video production, because you're going to do like a web episode series and you want to put it on iTunes so that people can, then I'll put you in touch with people who do that. Um, but at least I have a network of folks who can do it and I'll just advise and counsel from there because, you know, because they don't know where to start in some cases. And I have um, built up a pretty good cadre of, uh, of professionals that uh, we can build teams as needed. Would it be fair though now to say, so, you know, I, I heard you distinguish digital from, um, from media in what you were just saying, but in how technology is, is morphing and how things are moving, is there really, is, isn't that really kind of blending together? Or is I mean, it is, but but there's still some building blocks of media relations that are unique to the industry. I mean, developing relationships with a reporter is more important than sending blast emails to them or even tweeting at them, right? right. So it's kind of like, let's say, Mark, that you're a reporter here in Washington covering tech issues, and I've got a client who's a tech client, and uh, let's say we don't know each other, and I just tweet at you an article on behalf of my client, and I tag you in your tweet. Well, you're going to look at that and be like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this, right? But if I sent you a note and said, hey, Mark, my name's Dave Almasey. I work here in town in public relations. And one of my clients is a fairly large uh, you know, household name in the tech industry. And I'm trying to develop relationships with, with reporters in the tech industry. And I've noticed that you've written two articles in the past three months about my client. And I would like to set up a time where maybe you and my client and perhaps I can have coffee in the next couple of weeks. Would you be open to that? Now, which would you respond to? Right? Sure. Yep. So you'd be more likely to respond to the second one. We set up a, a meeting and, and, and I also, I do so without any sort of, you know, pressure for coverage, by the way, I'm merely making a connection. So that the next time that you, Mark, who is, you know, writing a story on this, um, on the tech industry and maybe involves my client, now you have a contact and you can call them and get insight either on the record or off the record on background to help inform your story, which is what your readers want. So those sorts of, you know, skills and, and um, sort of media relations tactics um, are still important. Um, and I think, you know, I think sometimes lazy people will just email someone or tweet at them and just think that, you know, a reporter is going to respond and be like, great, I'm going to give your client all this, you know, free publicity um, and that it's supposed to be positive. So I'll give you a, a, another short story. So when I was at Edelman, uh, one, of my, one of my clients was Adobe and um and we were trying to get, um, I'm sorry, uh, um, the, uh, Samsung, Samsung, sorry. Okay. Uh, we were trying to get uh, Samsung um, into the news. And at the time, the Apple iPhone had just been um, like relegated to a lower position because the Samsung Galaxy had just come out and the Galaxy was starting to get a lot of attention and good reviews. And so I called one of these tech reporters who was a freelancer, but wrote in a uh, major publication um, and so I said, and it was someone I had already known and developed a relationship with. And I said, I, you know, called him on the phone. I said, Hey, listen, uh, we've got some new stuff coming out of Samsung. It's really good. And I wanted to, um, wanted to get, you know, send it your way as an exclusive before we release it to the public in case you wanted to write an article for your youth, for your followers. Cause in addition to writing this major publication, he also ran a blog that was fairly well followed. Yep. And so he said, yeah, that's great. He said, but the problem is he said, I'm a freelancer and I got, I get paid by clicks by this large publication. So when I publish something in this large publication online, it has to have clickbait in it. And it's been proven from algorithms that any headline that has Apple in it is more clicked on than any headlines that don't. So huh. I'm happy to write an article about Samsung, but, um, but I can't do it right now because Apple's really thriving. And I said, I got an answer for you. I got a solution. How about Samsung beats Apple in latest results? Uh -huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's like, hey, that's brilliant. And so, so that's what he ended up doing. The whole article was about Samsung, but the headline had Apple in it. And so we both had our needs met. So, you know, that's sort of insights that we would not have had had we not developed a relationship beforehand. So yes, technology and interpersonal relationships are merging, but without that sort of, you know, developing of a relationship over time, then the credibility and authenticity can be affected. So you, know, you have to factor that in. So actually, and I, I have no idea if you've ever listened to my podcast or not, but now you are literally hitting exactly the, the place where corporate thought resides or why I started doing this. I don't believe that in a lot of our communication paths in business and in um, uh, online spaces and other places that are that our relationships are authentic and it concerns me. Now, this, all of this in my mind has been pre this, you know, whole uh, coronavirus situation, which I think is making people start to miss uh, personal connections. But I think we have become very tied to sort of, you know, if I, I'm not, I, I know people who say that they don't call a restaurant to make a reservation. If they can't make it online, then they must not take reservations. I'm like, no, you yeah. can call the restaurant up. But right, right. literally we had become and we were moving to such a place, I really b believe that was, um, you know, this short form, you know, uh, 140 characters or less uh, non-personal. But, you know, if you lived in that space, you never would have had that article for your for Samsung published, right? That's right. Um, you know, and not only that, but I think as you've described it, you build relationships with these reporters and with these these outlets, which is how you help your clients. Without that, it you know it it doesn't. If you just email them a, a press release, they don't do anything with it, like you said. That's right. And of course, those services are still out there. You know, PR newswires and others where you can pay tens of thousands of dollars to send it out to their blast email lists, but. You know, what I usually do is do a quick scouring online afterwards of how many of those releases actually got engagements in social media. And it's, it's very few. And I just, you know, it, there are times when it works. And but for the most part, it's just I think it's kind of a and no, no, you know, disparaging against certain business models. But, you know, you got to do what works. And it reminds me that about how we let technology take over our lives. We forget about the basics sometimes. Years ago, I was going down to the parking garage after work. It was about seven o'clock or so. And there was this young woman and she was standing in the middle of the parking lot. It was in the garage. So it was kind of underground and dark and she was in tears. And I was concerned. And I went up, I said, excuse me, miss. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Are you okay? And she goes, yeah. She said, my, um, my clicker on my car, the battery's burned out and I can't get into my car. And I said, well, what about your key? And she goes, well, my key won't help me. I have to, I have to open the car with, with the clicker. And I said, no, no, your key works. <laughs> like put the key in the door and then you can, open. she was like, oh my God. And she felt totally stupid. And she was like, you know, I got so used to using the clicker. I didn't realize that I actually had the key the whole time. I could have just used that to open the door and drive away. But the point is, is like, you know, we forget sometimes that the basics are still the basics. We become so rely, so reliant upon these like technology shortcuts. And my view is like, you know, Technology is there when you're unable to meet. So like you said, now in the midst of a virus, we can't do it. So we use technology and it may fundamentally shift the way that we do business. Maybe people don't go back to college anymore and they do it all online for the next year or so. And maybe people like that and realize they don't have to spend $72,000 a year to go to a college when they can do it online for much less. Um, but so there might be some paradigm shifts when it comes to that. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the interpersonal networking piece of it 
And so one of the things I try to do is I have, you know, much, much like everybody, I've got a pretty good Rolodex in my iPhone of folks that I have come into contact with over the years. And whether we text or email or talk on the phone, I pretty much add just about everyone in there at some point or another. And what I try to do um, a couple times a week is I'll just do like Rolodex roulette and I'll just flip through and it'll stop on somebody. And I will just send that person an email or text and be like, hey, I'm talking to you in a while. Hope everything's good. Right. And nine times out of 10, they're going to write back. And they're going to say, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard from you in several years. What are you up to? And then we'll kind of rekindle that, that, that relationship. And maybe it'll last for a week or two. And, and maybe it won't. But the point is, is that you're always kind of, you know, kind of sending little messages out there. For example, you and I recently reconnected because you sent me a text saying, hey, how's the family doing on the coronavirus thing? Right. And I was like, hey, good to hear from you. What's going on? And, and then we talked about doing this podcast. So, you know, those sorts of tactics are, you know, timeless. And I think that people just need to make an extra effort to do it. And I think that you'll find that uh, not only is it the right thing to do because we weren't meant to go through life alone, in my view, but I think that there will pay some dividends down the road as well. I, I agree. And you have no idea how you just warm my heart by using the term <laughs> Rolodex. Because <laughs> a lot of people look at me like I'm nuts when I say Rolodex. And I'm like, okay, you know, your contact list, whatever you want to call it. I still call it a Rolodex too. So, so uh, I assume you know who Sean Spicer is. Sure. Yeah. So obviously when he left the White House, he he now has a new show and um, he was interviewing a longtime Washington journalist just last week. And I saw on Sean's Instagram channel, if you want to go look it up, I think it's just at Sean Spicer, S-E-A-N, S-P-I-C-E-R. He's got a picture of this journalist and he has literally a bookcase filled of Rolodexes. I mean, it's like four decades as a Washington reporter. um, And it's just it's something you don't see anymore. Um, right. these, these paper cards that literally roll around and flip around and he's, he must have thousands. And um, so Sean said during his interview, he asked him about the Rolodex and how he manages his context offline. Um, so yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. So to your point, I just hadn't heard anybody really talk about a Rolodex uh, in, in recent memory. <laughs> no, no, no. And I, and I, I don't care if you really keep it online. I just, I still refer to it as my Rolodex for sure. That's right. That's right. So, anyway. So uh, speaking of which Dave, how can people find you? Great question. Thank you. So first of all, yeah, my company is called Capital Gig. It's C-A-P-I-T-A-L-G-I-G. Um, it's kind of a mixture of living in the capital and having a job. Gig, gig can also mean like a job, but it also means an amount of data. So I initially launched it as a, as a blog about technology and politics and working in Washington. Um, and like most bloggers, I don't blog anymore. So it became sort of a, uh, when I decided to launch the business, I already had the the search engine juice uh, with it. So I just kept it up and kind of use it as my primary uh, point of contact. So david at capitalgig.com is my email. And then you can find me on Twitter at Almacy, A-L-M-A-C-Y, which is my last name. And that's usually my same handle for most of the online properties that are out there. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you taking time. I know you've got stuff going on and taking the time to come on and and share your story a little bit with with. Uh, my listeners, I think that there's a lot of interesting things that they can be thinking about because most of my listeners are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurially spirited. So um, I think uh, you gave them some great things to think about. Excellent, Mark. Always great to talk with you and I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dave Almasy. Certainly his stories are unique and inspiring as technology develops and furthers our communication tools and paths every day. As always, thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to the Corporate Thought Podcast 
wherever you get podcasts. And be sure to check out 31 Minutes, my weekly conversation with three other entrepreneurs and business leaders. New episodes come out every Friday.